and welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. Check them out if you have not. My name is Stephen Hostetter. Welcome to 2024. And I'm here with back from the lands across the sea, Lauren Latour. I'm back from outer space. I just walked in to find you here with no, sorry, I'm not gonna sing all of respect, but I could. I'm I mean, I'd be mean, we got time. <laughs> which is the beginning yeah, of the show. We, yeah, we, we got 20 <laughs> minutes to kill. Karaoke. Let's do it. Of course, our other co-host Dave Hostetter is off sick today. Hope you feel better soon, Dave. And we are here with an interview in about 25 minutes time with Dr. Sarika Kulis Suzuki, who is one of the new co-hosts of The Nature of Things. We're talking about a documentary that airs on CBC on next Thursday, January 11th at 9 p.m., which is called The Mystery of the Walking Whale. So if you want to know things about whales, which you do, because whales are great, listen to the interview and then watch the documentary. Honestly, I learned a ton. It's fascinating. Often documentary names like don't deliver. They sort of hint at something and they don't do like, you know, especially ones that you see like on the Discovery Channel. Mm. This one delivers. It 100% delivers you a walking whale. It explains why. And then even gives you a hooved whale, which is, I know. Chic. But yeah, it's not one of those things where it's like the secrets of Stonehenge. And then you go and it's just like, no, this is just regular information. You just told me it's rocks. I knew that already. I was hoping for like mystery and intrigue and something big to be revealed. And at the end of the day, it's like, and there are some mysteries we'll never know. There are some mysteries we still may never know, but this mystery they get to to the bottom of in in a very, very approachable 44 minutes. But now I am reflecting on the fact that like that would be a fun job is making like BS documentaries for the History Channel. (laughs) Shark Week hasn't done good things for shark populations, but like that would be a fun job is making like ridiculous pseudo documentaries for Shark Week, for instance. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, that will happen uh, in about half an hour. But before that, you and I are going to chat a little bit about your experiences at COP because Every time you get back, it's always interesting to hear sort of what the experience personally was. We covered the sort of nuts and bolts of what actually happened in a couple of weeks ago episode with Mitchell Beer from the Energy Mix. And so this is more about vibes and experience. So how was it? Yeah, got to start off by saying like COP is always weird, right? It's, it's a bizarre space. The way I sort of thought about it this time when I was like trying to do some reflecting earlier today was that like cop really is and especially this one because it was so many people this this cop was like 97,000 people and I think previously I don't think I'm misspeaking when I say the largest cop prior to that was around the 45 to 50,000 person mark so like this was colossal it was at a pre-existing expo center it was big it was sprawling it was outdoors it was lots of buildings and it felt very much COP always feels weird and insular, but this one especially felt like being in a little town or almost like a university campus kind of thing. At one point, I was reflecting on some really, really powerful pro-Palestine solidarity marches and demonstrations and stuff that were happening and trying to figure out a way to convey to listeners and to folks back home that like those really were powerful and important moments. And I know that might seem hard to believe when it's like, well, people outside of cop didn't really know they were happening and stuff like that like it's it's like the impact of a solidarity march at cop 
might be hard to 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 sort of understand or to measure. But in the moment, it feels so integral and it feels so important because what you've got at a cop is, like I said, kind of like a little town, but it's a little town populated entirely by this incredible cross section of like a truly international community. Um, so, so more so than ever, I felt sort of like the scale of COP then in previous years. For listeners, this was my fifth. I've been to Paris was was the big one that happened back in, oh my God, 2015 was COP21 in Paris. And that's where we got the Paris Accord from. So that's what happens at COP every year is, is it's when the international community comes together to try to get down on paper basically what our what our plan is for tackling climate change, not only as an international community, but then also sort of like setting standards for folks back home as well. And this year, like Mitchell might have talked to you about, was our first global stock take year. You might also hear it referred to as a GST. So that was the big text that was coming out of COP this year was this big sort of like moment to measure what progress is looking like and, and set some standards for for working ahead. And, and like I'm sure Mitchell said, this was... Uh, there's a lot of mixed feelings about it, about the text this year, because although it wasn't nearly, of course, as ambitious as we need it to be, there was some important kind of groundbreaking language around fossil fuel transition. And I know it seems nuts that in the year of our Lord 2023 slash 2024 now, we would be excited at all about bare minimum language around fossil fuel transition. But like, again, folks at home should understand that like the first time fossil fuels were mentioned in COP texts, period, full stop. Was it Glasgow three years ago? So it's like, it, I know it doesn't feel like much, but it really was some progress that was made. Of course, it's not as strong as we would like that language to be. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of folks were really pushing for a stronger, more phase-out centered language. And, and I think what this sort of like weaker milk toast text indicates to us is that it's it's proof of, of what we already know to be true, that there's some really, really powerful nations that are still sort of pulling out all the stops to slow progress. Um, because it's like instead of phase out language, we have transition away from fossil fuels and we still have references to unabated um, coal use, for instance, or um, inefficient subsidies as opposed to all subsidies. So it's it's not great, but I really like the way a friend of mine and fellow organizer who, who's been on the show before, Alienor Rougeau, who's with Fridays for Future and now works for Environmental Defense Canada, the way I think she she phrased it in a tweet was this is what used to be the ceiling is now the floor. So it's it's that that's what COP's about. It's about unfortunately, it's about sort of building ourselves a new floor year after year and just trying to to make I hate talking about celebrating incremental change, but like really. But I but I think the other sort of big thing that came out of COP for me this year was like I sort of referenced earlier in this kind of meandering rant was that the entire conference was kind of underneath the shadow of everything that's been happening in Gaza and, and Israel's ongoing genocide of Palestinian peoples. Because, of course, COP was only about 2,000 kilometers away from, from Gaza. It was really close. And it was the it was the conversation that the international sort of like activist community really wanted to have and really wanted to prioritize. And it was really palpable. You felt it. It was referenced all the time. It was what people wanted to organize around. It was what people wanted to demonstrate around. And I feel like that was something that at least for me was quite powerful. And I think sowed some really good seeds for sort of cross-movement, inter-movement solidarity. I know later on in the show, we're going to talk about, for instance, the ways that the climate movement needs to do a better job of showing up for migrant migrant justice issues. And I think some of the work that happened at COP this year around solidarity with Gaza was, was again, really positive because it drove home to, to the climate community that like these issues are the same. They are related. Climate 
crisis is is a is a crisis of colonialism, as is the ongoing genocide of Palestinian peoples on on the part of Israel. So that was another sort of like a positive is a weird way to frame it. But but for me, that was sort of a major thing to come out of cop. But if I'm going to be be sort of like real and raw and honest from like a personal vibe standpoint, and this is a conversation I've had a lot with colleagues. I I don't know. I don't want to like count my chickens before they hatch or whatever. But like, I don't know that I'm going to be heading to cop in future years. I think this was a year that for me and again, this this is more so an indication of like sort of like where I am in my in my sort of like activist life. But and again, not an indication of the good work that's happening at COP because a lot of really good work happens at COP. And I've seen a lot of really exciting changes in in like my short time going. But I had a really, really hard time not feeling kind of ambivalent and not feeling kind of a little bit apathetic, honestly, is 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 how I sort of ended up feeling a lot of the time. Again, not because the work that's happening there isn't good. And there aren't obviously 97,000 people who many of whom are working really hard to to progress and propel change. I think it was just an indicator for me that not every space is necessary for every climate organizer to go to. And I think maybe something that I'm going to have to learn how to do is is seed space to somebody else going forward, potentially, at least for at least for a little bit. And that's sort of a lesson I'm trying to learn myself is that part of making sure we don't burn out as organizers and activists is is listening to sort of those little internal compasses and and going where they tell us to go as opposed to going where we feel we have to based on sort of like I don't know external career signifiers or something like that. Anyway, that that isn't really relevant to the overall cop thing. That was just a sort of something I've been sitting with over the last couple of weeks and I don't know. Well, thought well, I And I think it's yeah, I mean, I think that is totally relevant in part because that's a conversation that you sort of saw in and around COP, especially off the backs of last year's, like the last couple have definitely felt like we're not seeing the progress that you'd want to see. And so this question of how much should we be investing in this and how much should we be believing that this is going to be the thing that solves climate change or that gets us to where we need to go is one that you see more and more and more. And obviously the whole climate community constantly going and attending these COPs does validate them. Right. Like if 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 no one went, people would ignore it. People wouldn't see it as as important. And I think that might be a big step backwards because, you know, what other issues have these, you know, gigantic conferences that happen every year that are pushing things forward. And so, like, I don't I'm not advocating for that. But I do think that there's this is this moment of reckoning for many people about exactly what is the right level of engagement for this process. Yeah. Yeah. Because because to be clear, that's an interesting point you raise, like the acronym COP just stands for Conference of the Parties. And there are cops for a lot of different issues and a lot of different treaties. And we don't hear about them. We don't know about them because the one that matters and the, or the one that matters to to many people is is this climate cop. So so that's the thing. It's like, yeah, this to, to be clear to listeners, I'm not advocating for people not going to cop and I'm not advocating for the climate community to not care about it because your right step. It's like this is this is this this is the method and this is the system that we've got um, from an international sort of uh, agreement standpoint. And if I know I know every year there's this sort of question of like, do activists need to boycott COP? Do we need to not go? Because by going, like you said, we're we're validating the process. And the thing is, I think uh, it's a conversation that I am not super interested in myself because if organizers and activists and those who are really pushing for progressive climate change didn't go, then those are just perspectives that wouldn't exist. COP would still happen. The oil and gas industry would still be present. 
You would still have countries pushing back on progress. Uh, You would just get worse outcomes, unfortunately. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, like the climate community, like progressive organizers and activists need to be there because if if you weren't there, the outcomes would be even worse and the outcomes would be even, even, even less sort of, I don't know. Yeah, they're, they're. There'd be there'd be fewer successes to point to than we even have now, because because I think that is that is something that I have been really lucky and grateful to see over the course of my my time going to COP between between 2015 and now is that like the international activist community being there does make a big difference. It's like the international activist community is the reason that one point five got in the text in 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 Paris. It's it's the reason that we now think of 1.5 as the as the safe and livable limit. They're the reason that loss and damage is now discussed. They're the reason that even this kind of like somewhat lackluster reference to fossil fuel transition is 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 in the text. If organizers and activists in civil society wasn't there and wasn't putting on as strong and fierce a show as they possibly could and and demonstrating and communicating and lobbying and pushing in various ways, we wouldn't have the progress that we even have now. So it's it's incredibly important that people go and that people engage. I think the question that needs to be posed to organizers is like, do you as an individual need to go? Or are there ways that you can that you can do better work from home? Because, yeah, like like you said, it's 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 and I feel this myself and I have this conversation with with people myself. It's that like cops sucks the air out of the room for about a month and a half for for the climate community, because it's not just the two weeks it's happening. It's the weeks in the lead up. There's pre meetings. There's so much preparation that has to go in it. And then like, yeah, for better, for worse, we're all exhausted afterwards. So you end up getting like several, several weeks of post cop, like, I don't know, pausing where we've all got auto responders turned on on Gmail and and nobody's nobody's engaging. Uh, I was absent from the show for 6 weeks. Um uh and and that that isn't great either from a movement momentum standpoint because like you say it sort of centralizes all of the energy and all of the effort on this one place and this one process. Meanwhile, climate work needs to happen everywhere all the time. So uh, I think something I'm potentially looking forward to is not not just for myself, but for the climate community in general, is that I think I, like a COP next year isn't going to be nearly this big, right? We knew this was going to be a huge, ridiculous year because that's the way Dubai wanted it to be. The Dubai presidency wanted this to be the biggest COP ever, and that's what they got. And they had the facility set up for it. They they put a ton of money into it. They welcomed a lot of industry. They welcomed a lot of sort of the trade show style of the, the trade show aspect of COP. And next year, COP is going to be in Azerbaijan, which is a much smaller country with much less money, with much less energy to put towards tourist efforts and stuff like that. So I, I don't know how many people are going to go to COP next year, but I think I myself am, am really hoping that it ends up being a year that is that's a little more scaled back, that's a little more focused on the people who truly need to be in the room to make sure that that the text and, and negotiations um and the outcomes are are as strong as ambitious and as ambitious as they can possibly be and fewer sort of um I I mean this in sort of a derogatory way but I'm sorry if anybody takes offense but like fewer cop tourists you know what I mean and that and that more of us do a better job of evaluating where we can where we can be most in service of the movement during those few weeks and and I mean I I say that all understanding that like I myself contribute to the problem. I go to COP every year because that's where I want to be because that's that's where the action is and that's where it's exciting and I need to 
this this conversation is as much a self-reflection as as it is an external one. Thank you so much for those reflections. And I want to pick up on on one of those pieces you mentioned, uh, because for me, it's a bit of a theme for 2024. But before I do, I just want to say a huge thanks to everyone who supported and donated to our CIT fundraiser. This is our first show back, obviously. And so we should note that CIT, just before the new year, succeeded and passed its $100,000 goal. I think it actually hit $103,000. Huge shout out. And shout out to the folks who directly supported our show in by saying you're, we're your favorite show. So thank you to Kathy, Doug, Shirley, Garrett, Blair, Rebecca, Linda, Leanne, Caroline, and Nicholas. You're also very loved by us, too. And you know what? My mom's name wasn't anywhere on that list. So I know hey. that they actually do like us. And it's Amazing. not just like my mom being nice to me. Yeah. And the Leanne isn't, the, isn't my friend Leanne. It's a different Leanne. Wow. Shout out to Leanne. Yeah. So, so it is 2024. And so I did want to take a second to sort of think forward in the, in the new year, because I, I think that 2024 is going to be a, I mean, it's going to be an important year no matter what. Like the American election is happening. Obviously, we are creeping closer and closer to an unbelievably terrifying war that could engulf the entire Middle East as like, who knows what we're in for a little bit. And I'm not trying to doomsay us. I'm just like, it's going to be a lot that's happening. And so I think we as a climate movement need to start thinking through what we need to prioritize in this year. And I think that's hit me. And I know we haven't talked too much about Gaza in the past few weeks because we've sort of had these full-on interview episodes that sort of helped get us through the, through the holidays. But obviously that, uh, as you mentioned, devastation is continuing. And one thing it's highlighting for me and some of the stories I'm reading in connected to it is in relation to how the climate justice movement needs to get really serious about migrant rights. We we covered earlier in the fall talking about sort of the Migrant Right Justice Network and their work in trying to get status for all, which is one part of this. But another part of this is definitely how we as Canada and and then, and then the world treat differently treat different migrants from different places. The you know, contrast, the 200,000 Ukrainians that Canada said they would take almost immediately, like overnight, when, when Russia attacked Ukraine, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. That's like, if people are being attacked in their homes, for sure, that's a perfectly good thing to support them. But that fact can contrasted with the fact that the, the numbers of Palestinians that we've been willing to Canada has said it has, has accept. I saw recently it was as small as a thousand and the hoops that they would have to jump through to be able to come to Canada, even if they're being sponsored by Canadians and residents here are unbelievable. And the Sudan, which it spent over a year of things getting worse and worse and worse. I have friends who you know are from Sudan have been trying to take help with their families. And for a year, they've been trying to figure out if it was possible to get their families here and, and, and help them. And the Canadian government was basically just dragging their feet, dragging their feet, dragging their feet. Over the Christmas break, they did finally say this, that they'll, let, that they'll, make, it, they'll make a path for this. But that took over a year to do. And so we as Canadians, or people who live under this, under this government, have to ask ourselves why it's acceptable that we will that we will be so, so open to some people and so close to so many other people. And I think that we as climate justice advocates have to understand that this is 
unacceptable. And in the same way that that if we're people, we, people will also want to start, you know, we've talked earlier, share about how often immigration is being blamed for the housing crisis, which is also ridiculous. And so like there's all these ways in which we are seeing migrants and immigrants being scapegoated. And and if we are going to be a, a serious about our, our climate justice advocacy, we have to make sure that that's not something that we're sort of letting to go forward. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to I don't have anything all that intelligent to say, because like, yes, like, like other than just like wholehearted agreement with you, it's I know I know when we were talking before we hit record earlier. It's like looking at, at, at the country like Canada's approach to to immigration. Yes. But then specifically when you get into like if, if you're even just like shrinking it down to this issue of like refugees and people in crisis who desperately need to get out of the country they are currently residing in and need to be brought to safety. Canada's disparate approach to Ukraine versus Sudan and and Palestine. It's like that is it's blatantly racist. It is a blatantly racist colonial approach to to uh, I don't know the the value of 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 the humanity of these individuals. And it's it's shameful and it's disgusting. And no, it's it is 100 percent. It's something that we need to be um, better aligning ourselves with uh, better, like prioritizing more so as a climate community and showing up for those for for those folks and, and showing up for issues like this. Not least like not only because it's like, yes, we could we could tie tangential sort of like connections um, between these issues, uh, because like, yes, they're all ultimately like the, the, the root cause, the root evil is is colonialism and capitalism, but also just because it's like, I don't know, from a moral and ethical standpoint, it's like we cannot be this morally bankrupt uh, in, in in sort of like turning our gaze from this and saying like, no, actually, that's not my issue. My issue is climate change. And that's a different that's a different sort of set of problems. I, I had this. I had I had a boss once years ago who is who is not with my current organization for anybody who knows my current organization. Different, different, different group. This person shall remain nameless. This organization shall remain nameless. But it was it was an organization that my job was to focus on climate. And like when myself and a couple other employees were like trying to talk, I don't know, even just in really gentle, tacit ways about what it might look like to to, to take a more justice based approach to our work and and sort of um, uh, just just understanding that that climate is related to these issues and that we need to show up in solidarity. The phrase that was thrown back at us by this boss at the time was like this concept of mission creep and the idea that like, no, we're a climate organization, we're an environment organization, and we need to stay in our lane and other groups work on that. And that's their purvey. And this is our wheelhouse. And it's 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 most efficient if never the twain should meet. And it's like, I'm that's it's disgusting. It's morally reprehensible. In addition to being like, yeah, sure, strategically, whatever, we need to be building this intersectional robust cross-sectional cross-movement sort of like uh, front of of progressive ideology i guess it's like put push all that aside it's just what it means to be a good human being actually at the end of the day yeah and if i can if i can leave our our listeners with two other related stories to keep an eye on and and to pay attention to on this front because we are running out of time to make sure we get this interview in uh i would mention that that a Outside of the Canadian borders, this is still happening in other places. You know, the, this is the same conversation that should be being had with with the fact that Netanyahu and other top officials have directly stated their intention to move people permanently out of Gaza into other parts of the world. Just honestly, like I've seen parts of Egypt mentioned. I've seen people mention the Congo. Like it just sort of seems like the goal is to displace them permanently 
which is illegal in every international rules-based, uh, quote-unquote, rules-based order. And the the Biden administration is in the process right now of working with Repub- Republicans to get them on side for their next spending agreement. And what they're doing is they're basically dangling even more draconian border rules as their as their offer to Republicans. And some of the people who saw the original texts were horrified. And so I don't know if it's been reduced yet. It, there hasn't been anything fully formed. But I mean, both of these are, in my mind, huge, huge setups for sort of the eco-fascist world that we desperately, desperately have been warning about don't want. You know, the more we see the quote-unquote democracies of the West using their powers to create and enforce incredibly fascist attempts around their borders, like that is the pathway we desperately want to avoid. And so, again, may not immediately seem connected to to climate justice, but it is, and because I mean, all justice is justice. But it's, yeah, so those are two stories to keep an eye on as they move forward and to, and to tell people about because they are, yeah, they're wickedly warped. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and The Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. with Sarika Kolos-Suzuki, who is the co-host of The Nature of Things. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I want to get into the documentary because the documentary that is launching next week on Thursday, January 11th at 9 p.m. on CBC is called The Mystery of the Walking Whale. And I, I watched it over the break and a great tagline. And sometimes I will say, when they're sort of the taglines or titles of things, they just don't exactly deliver on it, especially like sometimes it's like, oh, it's happening. And you're like, they hint at it, but they don't together. This delivers. Like you deliver <laughs> us a walking whale for sure. <laughs> well, that thank you. I, I'm glad we deliver. Um, I mean, the title gives away the whole detective story. So I don't think we're spoiling too much to say that yeah, the great ancestor of our current modern whales was a walking whale. It had, was a four-legged creature that lived on land. It was about the size of a, a small deer or a large dog. I think it looked like a big, huge rodent. Um, had a long snout, big teeth. It had hooves and webbed feet and a long tail. And I mean, you would never look at this creature today and say, oh, this is related to whales. And yet what we discover is it it is indeed yeah, for sure. And 
the who's part really stuck out to me, but I, I'm getting way <laughs> I ahead of myself. So I, I, I will come back to this. But before we do, I did just want to spend a time talking about how you sort of got into this work and your background. And then again, the, and the nature of things and plans moving forward, because coming into this, this, this co-host role, and so I'm curious how you sort of see science education and the importance of science education. But so to start off, you open this particular documentary by talking about how you were a marine biologist. And so can you talk to me about that background in marine biology and how growing up, you know, surrounded by science educators ha has influenced your life? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, it's true. So my background is in marine biology and specifically I'm obsessed with fish. So it was really neat to be studying whales or researching whales because I don't know very much about them. But I, I did my undergrad in marine biology and I this was a period that was so exciting to me. It was the first time I learned to scuba dive and I was conducting underwater experiments for the first time and I, I couldn't get enough. And the month that my undergrad finished, I enrolled immediately in a master's program at the University of British Columbia. And this was the first time where I was kind of hit with all the bad things that were going on and affecting the oceans. How many different stressors are currently affecting them? And it was a really intense time because I was doing a, a global study of the effects of overfishing on the high seas. And I was able to deliver my findings to the United Nations. And it was really an incredible experience. But afterwards, I was like, man, I need to get back into the ocean, back into the things that inspired me in the first place. And I knew I wanted to do my PhD, but I wanted to do it on something that would inspire me. And so I went back to the shores of British Columbia, where I, I'm from and where I grew up. And I studied a, a singing fish, a fish that sings to the females to get it to come and mate with it. And I looked at the effects of boat noise on this fish. And so it was a, a really fantastic study. I loved it. But by the end of my time as a, a student, I realized that the urgency of the ecological crisis that's affecting us right now with climate change, biodiversity loss, species extinction, these were becoming so urgent that I needed to take a step back from science because science, as we know, is slow. It has to, right? To, to do everything, to, to come up with the idea, hypothesize, do the experiment, write it up, do the stats, publish. And we are just at the moment where we don't have, well, I personally didn't have the time. I needed to do something that had more impact now. And so I turned more into media. Now, media is something that I've always done alongside communication, alongside my science. But this opportunity came up for hosting the nature of things exactly in the moment where I was saying, I need to move more fully into communication and talk about these big issues that are affecting us right now. And so it was an unbelievable time, very lucky, and of course, a very personal moment as well, because David Suzuki, I grew up with him. He's my dad, and he's been hosting the nature of things since before I was born, so for over 40 years. And this is the first year that he is officially retired. I'll put that in air quotes because, as we know, David Suzuki never retires. He's always working. And then myself and, and Anthony Morgan, my fantastic co-hosts, are stepping into these roles to host uh, the new the new time at The Nature of Things, and it's very exciting. Um, but I do want to say that while the faces of The Nature of Things might be changing, the core principles of what make this show so important will remain. And in my mind, that is absolutely an emphasis on science, the environment, but also us as social beings and our responsibility to the world in an ever-changing planet. 
Yeah. So I, that's kind of my story. Amazing. You got actually, you just got into the my next question. So I, I wonder if I can tease it out a little bit more, which is this vision for, you know, you're stepping into a new role and for all of the ways in which you want to keep it to the core principles, I'm sure there's also some excitement in getting to do something new. And so I'm curious what you are excited for and what excited to bring into the nature of things. Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting time because The Nature of Things is a science show that's been on for over 60 years. I mean, that is mind-blowing, right? It's wow. the longest-running science show. I know. And so on the one hand, you're like, okay, well, we don't want to screw up what's working. You know, like clearly there are some great things about it. And on the other, we're like, okay, you know, it's 2024. It, it There's new faces. Things might be a little bit different. And I think what we're hoping to do in this new iteration is to make things a little bit more personal. So right now, I feel like authenticity is everything. People don't want to see rehearsed. They want to see real, which is quite refreshing. And so whereas before, we used to do a lot more stand-ups, things that were scripted. Now we're a little bit more spontaneous. We're kind of in the moment. We're asking questions that are occurring to us on the spot. Uh, we're really driven by the host's innate curiosities. And so what we'll find is that shows, they kind of start off usually with a genuine question posed by the host and something organic that will bring them into the story. So this is one of the things that's going to be a little bit different. Awesome. It's, it's funny you say that because I have a question that's for you that's driven by my innate curiosity because Perfect. it's something that I've thought about a fair amount and occasionally in this role, I get to meet people who are experts in their field. And so I would l love just to ask you this question. It's a completely side question. It has n almost little, very little to do with our entire conversation. But one of the big fears that I have had in terms of our collective attempts to tackle climate change has been the sort of constant sort of like back of the back of the mind suggestions for more geoengineering type solutions, specifically things like, especially this the last year, we've seen how aerosols, once you remove them from shipping, you know, we saw a spike uh, in temperatures within three years or so. And there's always this sort of fear in my mind that someone's going to be like, you know how we should really solve climate change? Just pump aerosols in the atmosphere. And the concern I've always had around this, one of the concerns is that the oceans are still acidifying and there's nothing that aerosol would do to prevent the carbon dioxide from acidifying the oceans. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if, A, like, do you, how much do you know about ocean acidification? In which case, like, if the answer is none, I will cut this entire section. Um, <laughs> I guess it's just me being curious. But I've, I've really thought about this sort of like, if we don't actually address the underlying root problem, yeah, we are still allowing the ecosystem imbalance to occur. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's such a good existential question because we are living in an age of technology, right? And we're thinking that all these things can solve our problems. Technology is going to save us. AI is going to save us, right? <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, first of all, a lot of these things are done in isolation. Science is done in a lab, right? And we can come up with great ideas and findings but we don't actually know what's going to happen in the real world. And the only way we find out is if we do a global experiment, if we actually do them in the real world. And most of the time, what we find is what happens in the real world is not what happens in a lab. 
Because how could it be? You have a controlled small setting and here you have winds, you have weather and climate and all these other things, animals, organisms affected in ways that we just can't predict. So it's very dangerous to say, this will be our salvation, right? It's very tempting, but it's a bit too good to be true. And it's just clear that the basic things we can do now, we know will have an impact, are stop our emissions, stop burning fossil fuel. Like that is something that we know that we can stop. And the other thing that I find so interesting is that when we talk about technology as it being our salvation, you know, and then you think about, well, imagine if I could, I could create something that would suck CO2 out of the air. And at the same time, it would create habitat for this many creatures. And at the same time, it would keep the banks in place and stop erosion. And at the same time, it could be used, you know, and it could, guess what? We have that. Those are called trees and we're cutting them down and we're not, you know, it's like, why are we trying to invent something that doesn't exist that might work, but probably won't. And it will probably have pollution and all these, you know, when we have the solutions already. And so in my mind, the smartest thing to do would be trying to stop say that te saying technology is going to save us and instead look at what is working and that is nature. Yeah, for sure. And in oceans, you know, absorb something like 60 or 70% of CO2. Like exactly. They're they're one of the the most important sections. And so I want to get to the I have one last question before we get to the documentary itself, which is I'm you've sort of touched on this before, but I'd love to get your thoughts more directly on the role of science education within our society. You know, like it's it's one of these things where it, it can become a bit of like a people, you know, an educated society is a good, is a helpful thing. But I think science education specifically can get lost sometimes. But knowing how things work may prevent us from presuming, you know, that technology can save us when you know that there are sort of these other problems. And so how do you yeah. think about science education? I think it's really important. And I think that's why the nature of things is a very important program, because in an hour, you can really get into some some big issues. A problem is we science affects our every day in the city. Every single thing we do almost is being impacted by science. And if we don't understand how or that it's happening, we're not going to be able to make informed decisions. And so we're not saying on the nature of things like, oh, science is going to save us. It's the best thing. It is an absolutely important and powerful vessel, yes. But if it's in the wrong hands or if it's not done within the paradigms of ethics and morals and, and standards, then things can get a little bit tricky. And so we want to make sure that we talk about it in ways of like, okay, what's happening right now? Sometimes science is done and the public doesn't even know about it. Why is that? And so for me, it was really important, you know, like science is absolutely necessary and great, but on the other hand, we need to understand it. And so for me, the communication side was just as important. And the other thing that the nature of things, what I think is important to highlight is we are not just highlighting science. We're highlighting evidence-based information. And that includes indigenous knowledge, other ways of accumulating information. It's any way that, that shows an evidence how things are. And I think that's a very important distinction. Yeah, for sure. As, especially as more often we see the ways where indigenous knowledge yields better outcomes often than, than than Western science, especially when it comes to conservation, which is, you know, a huge percentage of the work that you would do in relationship to, to nature. Yeah, well, that's a very good point, because unlike a scientist living in a lab, indigenous peoples have survived over thousands of years 
through trial and error, right? They learn and, and sometimes at great peril, they learn the hard way. And so these are nuggets of information that are being passed along in order to survive. Like that is so, and they are living in the real world, unlike us in, in our lab coats in a, in a science lab. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so thank you for all of that. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I will now transition to talking about this documentary, which again airs January 11th at 9 p.m. And it is about walking whales. I mean, it's, it's, which is also, I guess, in some ways about the detective story, as you said, of tracking evolution back in time. And so you mentioned that you sort of start with a question on each episode. And so what question sort of drove this, this documentary? Yeah, well, so when this, this program idea came to me, it was already like, okay, this is a really cool idea for a show. I think because it's one of, one of the cases where you can almost see evolution in action. And evolution is a kind of a hard concept to really visualize, but this was so amazing because I was physically able to go to the Valley of the Whales, which is in Wadi Hitan in Egypt. And it's a desert. So you're like, why would I be going to a desert to be looking at whale skeletons? Well, of course, 40 million years ago, Wadi Hitan was actually an ocean. It was part of the Tethys Sea. And this sea was really rich and diverse. It was full of different organisms, including many different types of whale. And so then the climate changed and it turned into a desert. We have these skeletons, these remnants of these ancient animals that once were. And so it's a it's an unbelievable place where you can actually walk up to the skeletons. It's like an open air museum. And that's a beautiful thing. But also the elements, the wind, the rain are constantly chipping away at these skeletons. They're exposing them, but they're also blowing them away. And so the paleontologists have their work cut out for them. They have to work really fast at unearthing them, trying to identify them, put them together. And it was remarkable because I was able to see these different animals and how they physically changed over time. And so whales went from being almost completely land-based, spending lots of time in the ocean, but having their babies on land, and to these completely aquatic species that we know today in about 10 to 12 million years. And evolutionary speaking, that's pretty fast. So that was a, a, a such an amazing trip for me. Yeah, some of the footage, you know, of the the way that the bones work and and sort of following it in the desert. And it'd be like, this is a whale. And it's like, you you can't, not a drop of water can be seen in the, right. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, geologic totally, yeah. time. I know, I know. Not only can you not see a drop of water, but also I didn't see any life. Like that's what was so kind of, I was expecting some insects or some birds. I didn't see anything. So on the one hand, you're like, whoa, it really feels like a desert. And then on the other, you're, you're just constantly unearthing bones. Like you had to take off your shoes in order to just walk along the sand. And me, I am completely untrained. In my naked eye, I was able to, to find things that were remnants of uh, bones from whales from millions of years ago, as well as huge shark teeth from 40 million years ago. So it was, it was so cool. And I didn't know anything about paleontology, but I could see how you would get hooked and want to become a paleontologist. Yeah, for sure. And I love, if you just spend a second on on that sort of piece of how we can track evolution back in time, because that's something I found so interesting in the documentary was that they sort of explained how 
one particular bone would help you realize that, oh, this is related to this. And like it helped you actually sort of build from one animal to another, which I'm sure would often feel very counterintuitive, I guess I would say. Like, again, no one would imagine that whales were little, I won't say rodents, but they were like little creatures running around and then they got into the water and slowly now they're the biggest creatures on Earth. And so can you talk about how paleontologists and, and I guess evolutionary biologists are able to sort of trace through time? Yeah, yeah, such a good question. Well, we went to the Museum of Nature in Ottawa, and this was kind of neat because they have skeletons from all over the world that go down, back to, I think, 100 million years ago, like unbelievable expanses of time. And I met this scientist named Mark Ewan, who was such a great guy, but he took me into this room, and there were just thousands upon thousands of boxes and we were going up and down these rows and he pulls out one box and he takes out this bone. And it's an auditory bulla, which animals have and they have them in their ears. But this auditory bulla was really, really thick. And this was one of those moments in this unearthing of the whale ancestors where they were like, oh my God, this is a smoking gun. Because it was, the reason it was thick is because the animal from which it came from, was spending so much time in the ocean that this thickening of the bone occurred. And the only other animal alive today that has that bone, guess what? It's the whale. And so this was a, a beautiful way for them to say, holy cow, there is a link here. There were other examples of that. Like, why do whales have pelvises? They don't have legs, right? And this is this is another thing where you, when you go back a little bit more in time, you can see that well, 40 million years ago, the Bacillosaurus, which is an ancestor of the modern whale, they were about 20 meters long. They weighed about six tons, enormous animals, clearly in the ocean, but they had these tiny little legs. They were about this big. And so you're like, how did a 20 meter long animal have hind legs that were this short, like basically useless? So you think about a Tyrannosaurus rex with his forearms, and they're kind of similar where they're a little bit, you know, inconsequential. They don't do that much. Similar with the Bacillosaurus. But the reason it had these legs is simply because they were turning into a vestigial structure. Over time, this animal had longer legs, used them for walking on land. The more and more time this animal spent in the ocean, the less relevant its hind legs became until one day, you know, they completely vanished and the whale swam away and we we recognize that as the modern whale of today. So such a beautiful story. And when you go to the museum, you're able to see these skeletons. 50 million years ago, there was the Pachysaurus, that rodent-like animal you're talking about. Then 37 million years ago, we have Dorodon, who is, you know, his legs are getting smaller and smaller and his nostrils are migrating from the tip of his nose further and further back on his head. 40 million years ago, you get the Bacillosaurus, the one with the almost teeny tiny leg, and then you have the modern whale skeleton of today. And when you see those structures side by side, you can actually see evolution happening. And that is an incredible gift because it's hard to wrap your head around that visually, but when you see it there in front of you, it, it's unmistakable. Yeah. And that's such an interesting reality, right? Like that once you see it, it's like, oh, this actually totally makes sense. But before even understanding it, you have no idea. The other thing that was mentioned in the documentary that I thought was fascinating was the reason why whales swim with their tails pushing up and down instead of right to left was history of walking. 
Yeah. And that's something that I never thought about before. But most fish, not all, but most fish, if you think about like a salmon swimming, it's side to side, right? And their tail goes up and down. Whereas marine mammal whales, dolphins, they, they go, as you say, like this, and their tails are, are flattened from up and down. So it's a totally different way of moving. And if you wonder why that is the case, you can look back to their ancestors on land. If you think about like a galloping horse, it's the same undulating movement. And so it's the same similar structure in the modern whale skeleton, which allows them to move like that. That was a really neat thing. I'd never thought about that before. Yeah, totally. And now I'm not trying to imagine a horse running as if it was a fish. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you know, Would it work, right? Don't think it'd work. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 two more questions. The first is one that I sort of got off the, of the jump. And I think it's something about whales, I will say, that whales are one of the creatures that most inspire collective awe in humans. You know, like you see people go out whale watching and if there's a whale there, people sort of get quiet. You know, they sort of feel like they're in the presence of something bigger. Like there's a sort of, it's a physiological like, difference in terms of experiencing nature. And whales, I think, are one of the creatures that do it, probably because of their size, if I had to guess. But I don't know. Maybe there's other other reasons about yeah. this. And I'm and I'm sure I've experienced this in other places that aren't marine ecosystems. But I do think that one of the ways that we need as a society, really, to get back to or get back in line with Earth's, you know, natural rhythms is to cultivate a sense of awe for nature. Like mm. we have to give it a level of reverence, else we'll treat it like the dumping ground we have for the last 100 years, you know, mm -hmm. or 200 years. And so I'm curious how, how you as a scientist go about sort of A, experiencing nature from a scientific perspective and understanding, but then also leaving room for just being like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I am so lucky in my job because I'm able to go straight to the source. I'm able to meet the scientists who are in their field discovering things and their curiosity is so infectious because they're living it every day. But I think that that sense of awe, I think you're right. There is something about whales and I don't know what it is either. Maybe it is that they're just enormous, but I think there's something more. Like if you actually are lucky enough to see a whale out in life and in, in the wild and they look at you, there's something that kind of gives you shivers there. It's like they know who you are. And, you know, indigenous people off the coast here say that they can see into your body, they can see who you are. And now science is saying, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, through echolocation, they're actually looking through your body, which are just mind blowing. And so there's a connection there. There's this, this understanding that these are highly intelligent, highly evolved creatures, right? And I think that's why it's unsettling to know about these rammings that have been going on. Have you heard about that? These orcas ramming boats, like hundreds of them. Why is that? You know, is it really a trend, which is what scientists tend to say, or is there something else going on? But I think there is another level of connection, as you say, you know, reverence to the natural world, but also it's basically understanding that we are nature. There is no distinction or separation from where we begin and where nature starts. I mean, every breath you take is, is a part of nature. Everything we drink, eat, our energy, all of it comes from nature. And so if we don't 
accept that basic principle, then we're hooped. And I think that that in Western society today is why we become so out of balance. And most cultures around the world are not like this. They're not like the Western society where it's an extractive model, right? They understand that they live in a web, that everything we do is connected to everything else. And we have to treat the world accordingly. So yes, I think that that is paramount in education and science education as well. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. I mean, if anyone has any other ideas about whales, but the fact that Echolocation <laughs> see through it, that's that blew my mind even just that. That's the idea that of- I yeah, know. Right, that is what's happening. I, I want to research that because I'm like, how is that? It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So my last question, which I ask anyone who's done sort of deep dives into different topics, which is, was there something that you learned during this process that when you learned it sort of hit you in the face, like, wow, that's super interesting. Everyone should know this. Like it's counterintuitive or it's just sparked something in you that you're like, that you just told everyone for like a week or two. Well, I think all of it is pretty extraordinary. I think that the t detective aspect of it is really cool. And I don't want to give everything away so that there is something for the viewer left. But I think all the the little the little clues that kind of build up into one big like wow is is really neat. You know, the nostrils migrating from the front of the face up to the to the head and then to the back to the modern whale today, like things like that. I think that it's really neat to think about science from this like bigger perspective. I love that there were so many different fields of science that were all contributing to it. You know, you have the DNA analysis, you have the paleontologists, you have the biologists, all of them working from different angles. And then I also think what was neat is that I'm standing in a desert that was once the ocean and knowing that climate has affected where these creatures end up, the fact that they have now gone into the ocean and that they're a, a highly successful species in all of our, our seas today, but that once again, we're in a, an a era of climate change. And this time, the changes are happening so rapidly. So we're thinking about the past, absolutely, but it does throw to the future when you're thinking about how climate change is going to impact us and our evolution. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. Again, if folks want to see and learn about whales that walked, you can on January 11th, next Thursday at 9 p.m. on CBC, and I'm sure afterwards on CBC Gem. This has been Dr. Srika Kulis-Suzuki. Thank you so much for being here, and good luck on the rest of the season. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure being here. I really value your questions. Cheers. It's not easy being real. It's not easy.